Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. Thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer, for being here. I'm super excited to start speaking with you. You want to start by telling us, what would you say if you can't speak at all for 24 hours and say just one word? What would that word be? Honesty. Oh, I like that. Okay, so before we even start, we know exactly what your values are, what you think, how you think she mm-hmm. should go. I like that answer. Okay, so now for a topic of what we're talking about of emotional intimacy and the effect it has on sexual intimacy. What's the effect that emotional intimacy has on sexual intimacy? Well, sometimes I feel a little bit like in marriage, we do what we sometimes do in psychology, which is we make a kind of false split between emotional and sexual intimacy. Like we do it between the mind and the body in psychology, where I think it's much more integrated than it's kind of a false division a little bit. But what I would say is, you know, it's in a long-term partnership, it's difficult to want to have sex with someone you don't fundamentally like, trust, and dare to be your full self with, which is very much linked to the quality of the relationship. So, you know, I think sometimes even saying emotional intimacy is a little bit, I use the framing, so I understand why we do it, but it's a little bit of a false category, which is, I think the real deal is how free am I to be who I am with you? to show you who I am sexually, emotionally, intellectually, to be intimate. And how much room do I make for you to be yourself and to show me who you are and to create a partnership that makes room for two of us to live honestly and open-heartedly with one another. So that's a big part of a sustainable and um, growing emotional and sexual relationship. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and you're very right about the fact that we split it so much. Like we take medication for back pains and things that we have when it's all emotional, it's all, there's much more to it. So what could someone do to really go and feel more free if they feel like they're free to an extent some days more than others, but they really want to have that full freedom together with their spouse. And they want their partner to also feel free with them the whole time. What do you suggest? Well, it comes down to that favorite word of honesty, which is, you know, a lot of times because, you know, the primary frame or the way I think when I'm working with couples is that, you know, we want to be free and we want to be true to ourselves and we want to be honest, but many of us want approval more. And we want to feel that we're accepted or we're getting that validation. So when you need people to be okay with you too much, you're tempted to live dishonestly because you're sacrificing what's true for the other person to think well of you. And this happens even more in marriage really often than it does with a full stranger. Like sometimes with a stranger, you can reveal more of who you are because you're never going to see them again. This is like the hairdresser effect where they, you know, they just start telling you stuff and, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, because there's very low investment where with your life partner that you've got a mortgage and kids with, it can often be a lot harder to say what you really think and feel and deal with the potential rejection, invalidation, criticism, conflict. 
And so a lot of times couples instinctively step away from it, the potential invalidation, but then create something that has a dishonesty in it. And so it gives you kind of peace up front, but not ultimately does it give you peace. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And and it's it's for right now. But if you do want to go and improve that, you're like, okay, so I'm noticing that I'm more comfortable with strangers sometimes and or even not, not everybody's like that. It, just, it depends on your personality. I'm just not always 100, 1,000% comfortable with my partner. There's things like I'm sometimes doing that I just want for that approval, even if I don't want to admit it, but it is true. Then then what can you go do differently? Well, I think it's to start being more honest with yourself and with your partner. And don't mistake this to mean like sometimes people use honesty as a weapon. Like they actually have another agenda and they like, you know, I'm always off thought you were fat or something. <laughs> like, I don't mean like right. to go around <laughs> in the name of honesty, doing destructive things, but you know, that you're in a more self-confronting way, which is to say, you know, I have a hard time with the way that we always, you know, go along with your idea when it comes to purchasing a car. And I've been a part of that because, you know, I don't like you to give me the 700 reasons why you're right. And I'm wrong, but when I'm quiet, then I feel this resentment build and then it undermines my feelings about you and my feelings about us. Okay. So for example, that's a way of kind of getting more information on the table. Collaborative couples are willing to get what's true on the table so that their, their emotional intelligence goes up so they can look at what's actually happening. What often people do is they get focused on the limitations of their partner, but they're blind to their contributions to the fact of that problematic thing. So that is to say, a lot of times we're doing things that invite our spouse to be defensive or invite our spouse to be guarded with us. And so it means like, okay, I can see this about myself. I can see this about you. What do you see about yourself? What do you see about me? This is not a fun process because it means almost necessarily a puncture to your view of yourself. And we all like our, we often like the way we've made meaning in our own minds about what's real and who we are. But if you're going to create an intimate marriage and you're going to let honesty be a guiding principle, what is true will impact and change how you understand yourself. So that's kind of my long way of saying is to start to look at where are the places in my partnership where I mask my mind, that I'm not really honest, that I manage my spouse um, and manage what he knows about me or she knows about me. So it's about looking for these places where you hide or you pressure your spouse to do what makes you comfortable or to believe what you believe or but it's a way of getting away from who they really are and letting them have real choices. Yeah, it's about taking full responsibility for what you did in the part and what you did in the relationship, and not just like putting it on your partner. Oh, you made me mad. You whatever. No, that triggered something in you that you caused you to go and feel that way, or caused your partner to afterwards go and yell on you at you because of what you did. Um, yes. In this. Yeah, we're so much more in a system of behavior, then we're acting as autonomous individuals. And so, you know, a lot of my work is helping people see the way they're in relationship and how one often reinforces the other's position. 
the underfunctioner goes and partners with an overfunctioner, and an overfunctioner is looking for an underfunctioner. I want to need somebody is the underfunctioner's role, and I want to feel needed is the overfunctioner's role. And they're both immature positions, but it makes it very easy for that to kind of use your shared weakness to kind of create a, a pattern that repeats itself over and over. And it's easy in that to just get focused on the other person rather than how am I a part of a cohesive or kind of replicating pattern between my spouse and me. So if a person recognizes they're listening to this, they're like, "Um, okay, this is true. I'm doing things that aren't so good. I'm putting things in this relationship that aren't so good. And I'm probably the overfunctioner or the underfunctioner, whichever one you think Mm -hmm. you are. How could they now go and step out of it and make it? balanced and healthy. Mm -hmm. So you can't change your partner, even though we've all tried. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And you can only change your participation in a pattern, which is no small thing. Because if you really do change your participation, you change the pattern. Okay. Because yeah, the other person's gonna get really angry at first. Like yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No, they are. They're gonna get upset and they'll probably double down to push you back into the position that you both know so well. So changing isn't easy in that sense. You've got not just your mind working against you, you've got your partner's mind working against you often. So so there's that fact. Um, But also, if you do get focused on your own, the, the way to know what it is, is through this honesty process, being honest with yourself, being honest with your partner, letting your partner tell you what he or she knows about you. Because as much as we might resent our partner's input on us, they've got some real truth to say. They can see more clearly than we can. They're not struggling with the the self-deception about us that we are. Yeah. <laughs> so they, you know, they're good, they're good providers of information. And that doesn't mean that they're a perfect provider. They may have their own agenda and their own blind spots. But a lot of times they do see your immaturities and they do see what you, uh, the way you delude yourself. And so if you're willing to live honestly and you want to live in a clean way, you are open to what you get wrong. You are open to what you don't yet know. Now, you know, I I have to be honest, like if I've asked my husband and he tells me, I usually make him pay for it at first. (laughs) And then I eventually I'm like, okay, you're right. I do do that, you know, and that's a pain. And I'm sorry about that. But it's like the more you can see what's real, the more you give yourself more agency, you give yourself more ability to choose differently. Because if you can't even see, you don't really have it as an option to behave more functionally in your partnership. But if you start seeing, oh my goodness, I can see that I handle my anxiety about life by trying to micromanage everybody else. And no wonder they're trying to get away from me. And no wonder my spouse starts feeling resentful. I have to stop doing that if I'm going to be a decent person. I don't like that I'm having this negative impact. It's just like my mother used to do or whatever. You know, people come into these meanings and they are like, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize I'm repeating this. Well, now they have more ability to stop themselves and they will feel anxious and uncomfortable. Oh my goodness, if I'm not micromanaging my spouse or my child, you know, maybe they're going to disappoint me. Maybe they're not going to do the things that I think will accrue to their life being good or whatever. But if you hold yourself to your own self-respect and you hold yourself accountable to behaviors that you know are decent or fair, you can tolerate the anxiety of changing your behavior. But you'll also see that your spouse or your child 
will now engage differently because you're not rushing in to solve it, for example, to use the overfunctioning idea that you were saying. You know, that they may not rush in at first. They might, they might double down on the dysfunction okay, at first. <laughs> but but if you really are kind of holding a cleaner, clearer headed place within yourself, well, it does invite other people to grow themselves. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Now they have the space to really go and become that person, become more of themselves and not live under the pressure of you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So if we're viewing a person or we do view the person as the whole person and all the parts of them, right? And their emo- as their emotional intimacy, which is really all parts, how they're becoming more free of themselves in all areas. There's still areas that they are. It takes time, right? Now, what happens if right now they see they became better sexually, more intimate? Then, do you think that's going to help them become more intimate in other areas because of the sexual intimacy? Yeah. Well, so just like I think you know, to use a framing, emotional intimacy does impact the sexual relationship. The sexual relationship impacts the friendship outside of the bedroom, for sure. So sometimes people want to make, you know, the desire part of a partnership, like the secondary thing. You And, and I mean, I know what they're saying and I agree with them. You can't be with someone you hate and really have good intimate sex. Okay. <laughs> so you do, you know, you need a friendship that's there, but in marriage, at least modern marriage, you need a good sexual friendship too. I mean, to really have a good friendship outside the bedroom. So when people say, you know, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Okay. Well, what does that mean? And that doesn't really work in a marriage because meaning, you know, I, I like you like a sister, but I'm not attracted to you. I mean, that that's, that's a big deal in a marriage. Yeah. And so while I work with a lot of clients who have ambivalence about sexuality and desire, I haven't met a client who doesn't want to be desired by their partner unless they're leaving the marriage or something. Okay. But but that that is to say, I may not want to have sex with you, but I want to know that you want me. And so this, this issue of whether or not you're wanted, whether or not you're desired, that's the big deal. It's not the frequency of sex per se. Right. It has a lot to do with, am I desired and wanted and valued? And that it's expressed through wanting me sexually. And then the other piece of it is kind of what's happening in the sexual relationship. Because sex isn't just sex. It's like, how are you sexual? Are you just trying to get something while you've got the chance and just take from your spouse and you serve your own needs? Or are you a good lover? Like, do you really care about them through the way you touch them? Do you care about their pleasure? Do you care about them as an entire person? Right? There's, you know, so there's it's not just sex. It's, there's a, it's a whole language. It's a whole way of being in relationship to the other person. And so, you know, so for people who have a really good sexual relationship, so much loving is happening through sexuality. Yeah. So much friendship is happening there. Exactly. When you're talking about wanting to be desired, I'm like, okay, so if you're wanting to be desired, the first thing you want to do is make sure that you're making your partner feel desired. Because like they said, you that whole it's a whole sexual language of coming from a loving place of wanting to be desired, of wanting to care and give to your partner. So yeah. Yeah, 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 it really does. Like you can't, like you said, you can't split it and just say, okay, this is sex. This is like conversation. This is, yeah. doesn't. They're all very highly related. And I agree with you. Like a lot of us want to be desired, but we don't want to desire. I mean, that's how I was when I was dating my husband was I wanted him to want me, but I wanted to be the more ambivalent one because it kind of gave me more 
control by being less invested. And a lot of people do that in marriage. You know, thankfully I grew out of that. And that's really how we got married is I could see what I was doing and I didn't like it in myself. And so, you know, that shifted and then we got married, but a lot of people bring that into marriage. And so they are using their kind of lower investment as a way of keeping the other person coming towards them. And Again, that's that sense of are we really friends or not, or are we in a kind of control struggle? And so it's confronting your participation in control battles versus really being a good friend, being the kind of friend you want to have in your partner. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, going back to the honesty and saying, what are you doing here? What are you giving? What are you going to take responsibility for? And say like, okay, I'm getting out of this unhealthy dance to make it work. That's right. Yeah. So what do you find the biggest challenge for couples to have couples have sexually? I think the biggest challenge I would say is, you know, I work with a religious population and so there can be just anxieties about sex in general. But I think if I were just to say across the population, it's the issues around desire and investment. A lot of what I'm speaking to right now, which is that in an intimate partnership you know, because we want validation and approval so much, we will compromise how honestly we live. We will compromise sometimes taking, we'll say, I want to be loved, but I don't want to love. I want you to reinforce me, but I don't want to grow up enough to really care for you. Or, you know, I'll fall fold into what you want me to be, but so that you think I'm okay, but then I resent you. So it's these, it's this dance around how do I be true to myself and be true to you? That's the primary question of a good partnership. And when we resolve that in in immature ways, right? Either by pressure the other person to be what I want or yield to them, but resent them, it kills desire. Now you may have a high desire person who feels unloved and is trying to get you to accommodate them, but that's different than a kind of reciprocal, open-hearted, mutually desiring partnership. And that I think comes in, especially in a long-term relationship that comes in sort of developing yourself into good emotional and sexual partners, good friends that you look after each other, that you look after each other's sexuality, that you create a home by really creating an honest friendship that's inclusive of your sexuality. Yeah. 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 An honest, loving, I think coming from a very loving place of honesty of what's going on here. Yes, exactly. That that it's not just honesty for the sake of, you know, just say whatever's true. Right. But honesty to facilitate partnership, honesty to, to address the challenges that are interfering with the peace in the marriage. So it's an honesty designed to solve. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's for sure. Now you were saying before about, um, from your clientele that's religious, they just their whole um, relationship, like a view on sex in general. Yeah. You want to share with that bit about us here? Because some of our audience also is religious, not everyone, yes. but some of them. So I think that would be very sure. helpful for them. Sure. Absolutely. Just, you know, so I think that a lot of times it depends on the faith tradition, but a lot of times there is, if there's a sexually conservative ethic, that is, we believe in marriage, a partner, sorry, sexual partnership is only a part of marriage. And for some religious traditions, it's, you know, sex is only legitimized by having children or, you know, okay, you can have sex, but 
not too much passion or not too much, you know, eroticism in that couple. So there's just often this idea that sexuality is antithetical to goodness or spirituality. And so even though we often in religious traditions give legitimacy to marriage and I'm sorry, sex in marriage, there's still a deep ambivalence for many people. And often that ambivalence gets played out differently between the genders. So that is that a lot of times in religious traditions, there's this idea that the ideal woman is sexually pure, that she is less interested in sex than a man if she's a really good woman. And so there's oftentimes a sort of idealization of the non-sexual female, which doesn't go so well once you get married because... (laughs) You know, I mean, maybe it works great in your virginal state, okay, perhaps. But once you've now been initiated into a grown-up relationship, if you, a lot of the women I work with, and I taught at a at Boston College for a few semesters uh, to the undergrads in a human sexuality class, and a lot of these Catholic girls at the Jesuit University were writing about this deep ambivalence about their sexuality um, in the essays they were writing for the class, and you know, my tradition is Latter-day Saint. So there's also in my dissertation research was this deep ambivalence about if I'm sexual, I've lost something. I've lost part of my value. I've lost part of my goodness as a person. I'm not as innocent and pure. And of course, that's a very problematic idealization because it doesn't give room for a woman to become a whole woman, to become an adult, to integrate her sexuality, to be capable of sexual partnership. And I know that's a that's a big problem. And a lot of times there's the fantasy, well, it'll just resolve itself upon getting married. But in my experience, that doesn't happen at all because there's not a framework for it being resolved because it's arm's length. The other thing I'd say is that men are often the higher desire partners in the, in those populations because they are masculinity isn't incongruous with sexual desire. However, a lot of these men still have a lot of sexual anxiety. So it's not about... Uh, it doesn't look like it. It maybe gets masked through their higher desire, but a lot of times they're looking to their wife to make their sexuality legitimate through her desire, through wanting it, through making it legitimate part of marriage. And if she's also ambivalent about it, then a lot of times, you know, men then are kind of not continuing to come to the partnership or going to porn or going, you know, to, to the solace of their own, uh, you know, the privacy of their own experience. but this sort of ambivalence is sort of threaded throughout the partnership. And so I really do a lot of work with helping people to kind of grow up in, it sounds a little insulting, I don't mean it like that, but to help them come into a more mature understanding of sexuality and humanity. And even from a religious frame that if God gave us our sexuality, then our sexuality is good. And so how do we create goodness with it and through it in a partnership? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a whole change of mindset. Like if you grew up this whole way and everyone around you is talking about things, things like this, and this is the mindset you're putting. And then like all of a sudden you got married and it's just meant yes. it's not going to happen. No. Yeah. In yeah. fact, a lot of women talk about a feeling of loss. Some women would cry after their wedding night, their first wedding night, because first of all, for women, it's often not a pleasurable experience at first because of just, you know, the, the, the pain of first initiation for a lot of people, but also this sense of loss of identity that was very linked to innocence. And that's just problematic if we give women that idea that that is somehow that to stay childlike is to be good. 
rather than how do you become an adult who is able, capable of creating good in her life and in her partnership and in her parenting or in any role that she's engaged in. Yeah. One of the things that personally bother me a lot about this is the fact that it, the the person, the woman that now gets married and starts crying the night afterwards and because she feels like she lost everything, feels like she's guilty and she's the one to blame when mm. it was really the society around her. Yes, she, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's just not seeing that they have been inducted into that experience that they've been taught in a way. I mean, I think yeah, not to blame anyone or no, no. Thing, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But absolutely, I mean, I, I teach a, a class for LDS women around called the Art of Desire, and the, one of the the main ideas is well, that I talk about is that it's a way of keeping women non-threatening is to divide them from their bodies and their sexuality. Yeah, and that's not godly. It's not good that we need to be at peace in our own skin if we're going to be capable of what we're capable of, if we're going to really be strong and able people able to make the world a better place. And so it's like giving them an understanding of these kind of traditions that have pulled them into a limited view of themselves. And it's not weird that they're thinking that that doesn't mean they're broken. It means they've been paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. So it's like good for reframing. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. But they've been paying attention to messages that are working against them. And there's a new way to think about how to be good, a new way to think about how to be strong. And so it gives them a way to integrate their sexuality without having to lose their faith necessarily, or, you know, to grow their notion of God up to be something more accommodating of their whole selves. Yeah. So what would you suggest to parents when raising kids, how to discuss and present with them sexuality, whether they're religious or not, which is mm-hmm. it should be in a healthy way. Yeah. They should see it as a Good thing yeah. in the right way. Right. Well, of course, it depends on the age of the child. And I won't spend time on that because what the message is, is different at different stages. But you you want to offer to your children that the body is good and the sexuality is a wonderful part of being human. And it might be hard as a parent to offer that if it hasn't been a wonderful part, if you were sexually exploited, if you haven't been able to create peace with your relationship, uh, with your sexuality. But you give your children a big leg up if you're able to model for them that the body's good. And part of that is through hugging them and kissing them and, you know, celebrating their their little selves and their embodied little selves. But I think it's not only that sexuality is a, is a normal and good part of being human, but that it's a language. And so the way you're in relationship to your sexuality has implications for how you feel about you. It also has implications for how you're in relationship to others. And so, um, and so, you know, helping your kids to have a goal, like I want to be able to create a good sexual partnership with someone I love down the road. So what are the ways I want to make choices, you know, as a 13-year-old, as a 15-year-old towards that end? So that you're giving a direction to their emerging sexuality and that it's based in its core on respect for self and respect for others. And and a little bit of tolerance for the awkwardness and the lack of wisdom that's going to be a part of that emergence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you get when you're an adolescent. Yeah. Yeah. But giving a direction is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I like that. I like that a lot. Now, what would you... What do you say to someone who has whose partner is either has a stronger or a lesser of a sexual desire than them? Welcome to marriage. 
<laughs> right? Like that's, there's, it's kind of almost always that there's one, I mean, like there's couples that can very much be in sync, right? But, you know, on any given night, on any given day, on it, you know, and then there's some that are kind of entrenched in I'm always higher, I'm always lower. Right. Um, and so the couples that thrive, okay, I have two thoughts. Uh, one is the couples that thrive don't take those desire differences too personally. And they keep their sense of responsibility to a good partnership high. So it's like, you know, this is, we are going to relate to this differently, but how do we stay friends around this? How do we be kind to each other in our respective differences, right? And so any good marriage is not going to be negligent towards one or the other, to the self, you're not going to neglect yourself and you're not going to neglect your partner. And, and people might say, well, how do you do that then? Either you have sex or you don't. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, you know, so it does mean making choices, but you're holding the friendship in mind. You're, if you're the high desire person, you're like, I'm not going to like make the fact that anytime I want it to be pressuring my spouse to manage or accommodate me. Uh, but I'm not going to also shame myself for liking sex. And so how do I, you know, be kind to myself, be honest about who I am, but not be always, you know, pressuring them to take care of me. If you're the lower desire person, well, in some ways you have a higher responsibility, whether or not you want it in a marriage, because, you know, your higher desire spouse is going to kind of go without, unless they're going to, you know, manipulate you or something into right. <laughs> coerce you. But if they're a good person, they're not going to do that. And so by default, you have more control in that dynamic as the lower desire person. And that doesn't mean you should just put out and, you know, disregard your wishes or anything, but you want to be responsible in them. You want to be thoughtful about, um, you know, I don't want to just be negligent of my spouse. I also don't want to just be, you know, giving mercy sex either. So, is there some way that we can create something that's more desirable for me? Are there ways that we could go about this differently? Not to critique your higher desire spouse so you don't have to be sexual, but instead, like, is there ways to think about this that would actually make sex more fun for me, more desirable for me, uh, to make it that when I'm there, we're really both there? Because a lot of times when these divisions get very exaggerated, it's not so much about like actual physiological differences. It's more about the meaning of sex drives it into extremes. Like if the high desire person never feels wanted or doesn't feel valued or, or likes to feel control and in this realm doesn't feel control, then they get really high desire more as a way of trying to manage their anxiety or trying to get the other person to submit to them. And so it's not really driven out of, hey, I love you and I want to be with you. It's driven more out of a need to feel okay about themselves. Well, that will drive a low desire person even lower in their desire because they feel like I've got to manage this person's sense of self and he or she's so needy and I can't handle it. And so it makes them want sex even less because it's a way of losing their sense of themselves when they're with their spouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense. And I I like that reframing of it, of like, how else can we make it fun? How else can we do this together? So mm -hmm. it's not, it's not meant to be like a uh, uh, torture here. Yeah. Uh, like, absolutely. You're meant to have fun. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Okay. So before we get to our final question, where else could Life Fixers find you and learn more about you? Sure. So you can go on my website, which is like my last name, which is finlayson-fife.com. So finlayson-fife.com. And on my website, 
there, I have a podcast archive. Um, so people can listen to me talk for about 17 hours there. If you push play, <laughs> uh, probably more than that, honestly. Um, and yeah, it is probably like a hundred hours, but anyway, uh, and then yeah, I have way more than seven. <laughs> Yeah. And then I have also online courses, you know, I primarily focus on LDS couples, but it's, that's, it's really, you know, every, everything I'm saying today, like how to create more intimate partnership and how to be more at peace with your sexuality. So I have those courses there and I'm going to, I'm in the process of beginning a podcast called room for two, which is interviewing real couples, giving them coaching around the patterns that they're engaging in, in their marriage that minimize that, that interfere with their friendship and their sexual desire. So it's just another way for people to kind of relate some of the things I teach to the real life of what's happening in the marriage. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, I can't wait for that. I need to see yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So for our final question, how would you describe an extraordinary relationship without using love, connection, or intimacy or honesty? I don't okay. know. <laughs> I can't use that one again. <laughs> Bummer. No. Okay. So give it to me again. How do you describe an extraordinary relationship? Yeah. Without using love, connection, intimacy, or honesty. Gratitude. Yeah. That's a big word that says, that says a lot, a lot so much about it. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was amazing. Really insightful and brought us great things. I really appreciate you taking the time to speaking with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Wasn't that a great episode? I love the way Dr. Jennifer goes and like reframes things and put things in a totally different way. Now, because next episode is episode 200, woohoo, I won't give you now three marriage picks just like I do after every episode, but I want to keep the 201, this special one. And so I'm going to give you them three now. It's your choice whether you want to listen to it right now and get a quick summary, whether you want to listen to it tomorrow and get a reminder or do both and make sure it really gets in your head. Ready? I shouldn't say your head. It gets in your heart, gets in your being, actually gets into you. So you really go into it. The very first marriage picks is the concept or the fact that emotional and sexual intimacy aren't split. They are part of one thing together, one thing as a whole. Your question really should be not how can I be more sexually intimate? It should really be how can I be more free with this person emotionally? physically, mentally, sexually, spiritually, every way. How can I be me in my most way? How can I be free in this relationship? Remember, we're a whole being with many, many different parts. Our second marriage picks is about the honesty fact. A collaborative relationship wants to make sure that they have the true facts. They know what's going on here. They know who is responsible. They are taking responsible for their part in the relationship, and they want to know the hard truth, even if it's really hard to hear it. They're not just getting mad at their partner for going screaming at them, not listening to them, not doing the thing that they promised to do, but rather, what did I do that triggered my partner to go and do that? What was my job in this, in this situation? After all, it's a relationship and it's dynamic and it's both people playing at the same time. You're not just hitting against the wall. What did you do to take part of this action that whether you did like, which congratulations, celebrate all the goodness that you've did in the relationship and in all the bad parts or the challenging parts, I should say. 
Now, the last marriage picks, I think, is really hard for some people to wrap their mind around. But I think if you could really reframe your questions when you have challenges, reframe your mindset on how you think of things, you will really get you completely different answers and get you to what you want. And that is, how can I be true to myself while at the same time being true to my partner? It doesn't have to be a contradiction. Reframe the question. You're brain will start thinking new answers and you'll get new types of solutions. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Super excited for our next one. 200th episode, you're not going to want to miss it. Answering your questions, stay tuned for it. For now, have an awesome rest of your day. Crush it, be more intimate in all areas of your life and I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in the show notes below to find her website, online courses she offers, information on upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.